Reading from the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 38. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless, then the second and the third married her. And so in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all of them are alive. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him another question. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. Well, first, we want to welcome everyone. Thank you for being here for this wonderful event of the baptism of Silas. What a good name. And we want to celebrate this. And I debated on how I wanted to formulate the sermon. And all I can tell you is I thought I would preach a sermon that is simply a letter to Silas. So this is a letter that I'm getting emotional thinking about. it. This is a letter that I wrote called Dear Silas. And you all can take from it whatever you want. So we're excited to celebrate this baptism, and what a name to baptize. Silas, that's a strong name. Stronger than other names like, oh, I don't know, Enrique, and such. <laughs> Silas is short for Sylvanus, meaning of the forest, which, by the way, is the same Latin word from which we get Pennsylvania. So I think, Stephanie and Nelson, I just solved the problem of Steelers or Browns fans. <laughs> Sorry, Steph. Silas was a leading member of the early church, a companion to Paul, who called him a faithful brother. One of my favorite things about Silas is how in sacred art, Silas is depicted as carrying broken chains, representing the story that we all know about Paul and Silas in prison and having their chains broken. And I was thinking, Steph and Nelson, good luck with baby gates. So... <laughs> In the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and the Episcopal Church, St. Silas is celebrated on January 26th and February the 10th for the Missouri Synod, July 13th for Roman Catholics, and July 30th for the Eastern Orthodox Church. So Silas, if you're listening to this later on, I suggest that you milk these days for all they're worth, bud. <laughs> Remind family and friends that gift giving is totally acceptable in honor of a saint on their feast day. You're welcome. Well, Silas, I can't think of a better text to preach on your baptism than one about old men arguing over whose wives they will have in heaven. 
So instead of starting with the gospel text, let's start with something else. How about we go to this moment that we're in and how this small congregation was formed? Silas, this is a new church. And like yourself, we're not even a year old. And yet collectively as a church, we've spent hundreds of years in churches spanning from Roman Catholic to Lutheran to Presbyterian to Methodist, free church evangelicals, classical Pentecostals. And somehow by God's grace, we found each other. As Paul said to the church in Colossae, love has knit us together under the banner of what some call convergence. In practice, we found common ground in the wideness of Anglican spirituality, often called the middle way or via media, because it combines Protestant and Catholic spirituality together. But we are also charismatic. Maybe one day, Silas, I will unpack that word for you, but for now, the best way I can define it would be people who believe that God is still acting in the world and that God can surprise us at any moment, and we like the idea that he could. Now, Silas, this kind of convergence reminds me of what we read today in Haggai. God is leading a small group of people, a remnant, into the future, but specifically by going back to ancient practices and going back to ancient spaces. And the text tells us that it appears at first to be rather unimpressive. But here's the first thing I want you to remember, Silas, in your life of faith. God always always uses things that do not look impressive. We read in Haggai, Is it not nothing in your sight? Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Good job, Mom, by the way, with that word. The high priest. Take courage, all of you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you. My dear Silas, you'll probably have peers who are drawn to a flashy, entertaining kind of spirituality when you get older. I want to encourage you towards a different imagination because God uses things that first do not look impressive, but he fills those things with grace. Babylon will seem more attractive to some, make no mistake, and the former glory will seem more appealing to others, and people will groan at the thought of returning to the ancient practices and ancient space of Jerusalem. And they'll say to you, it's nothing in our sight. Yet, Silas, take courage. God is using small things, setting the stage for something good, so don't be afraid. God usually chooses the unremarkable, ordinary things of this world to fill with his grace, things like mangers and hay and rags, things like bread and wine. Even though the lights will seem flashy and the smoke machines will fill the room with a lofty kind of haze, and that third verse guitar solo will oftentimes seem so entertaining, I want you to know that it's the table that will nourish you. Trust the words of one who used to program the lights and fill the sanctuary with haze. The second thing, Silas, should you ever listen to this later on, I want you to find out where you came from and remember where you came from, not just with your family heritage, but with your faith. To quote Maya Angelou, have great respect for the past. If you do not know where you've come from, you can't know where you're going. Silas, you're a part of a 2,000 year story 
of people living in the wake of the Spirit called the church. The call of a Christian is not to make things up or design cool religious encounters. It's to remember. That's what Christians are called to. To faithfully transfer the faith once delivered by Jesus Christ through the apostles to the bishops of the church who did not compose their own stuff. They simply remembered. When we remember what God has done, we'll have a better chance of participating with what God is doing so that God's future can break into the world, so that God's future can break into tomorrow. This is what the psalmist presents in Psalm 98, which was beautifully read by a person who I think likes the name Enrique. (laughs) I'm teasing him because he's one of the greatest guys I've ever met. In the psalm, we read that God uses the full spectrum of God's presence, past, present, and future. If you read the psalm, you see the past early on. He has done marvelous things. He has won the victory. He has shown his righteousness. But then the psalmist moves to the present. Make a joyful noise. Sing. Break forth. And then quickly after that, he speaks to the future. Let the sea roar. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills sing. Because God is coming. The past, the present, and the future model is the way we declare our faith. Or we say it this way, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. My dear Silas, you come from somewhere. Not only biologically, but spiritually. There's a crusty old theologian named Stanley Auerwas, who I like, and he once said something about evangelicals. I don't want evangelicals to continue to presume that they have a relationship with God that is unmediated, meaning without church history and without church tradition. That's a crucial issue that I see. One of the problems with evangelicalism, he said, particularly as it's taken the form of church growth model, the church growth model, is the presumption that you get to make God up, that you get to make Christianity up. So it's like, You don't receive it through the gifts of 2,000 years of church history that have made you possible. Too often, evangelicals feel like they have the New Testament and now, and that there's just nothing in between. And then Stanley says this, and I want you to remember this, Silas. Tradition matters. Of course, tradition is not always right, and it is subject to peril. But what makes us aware of peril and error is tradition. And speaking of tradition, the third thing I pray for you, Silas, is what Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, that you would stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word or mouth or by letter. There will always be megalomaniacs. You see, when I used to read this text back in the day, I was a dispensationalist and I was raised to watch movies that would scare everybody. Um, But if you study this, scholars will point out that Paul more than likely is speaking about a megalomaniac that came on the scene in his day. This guy's name was Caligula. And I want to tell you something, Silas, there will always be Caligulas in the world. People who have a God complex. People who hurt others. And it hurts me to say this, Silas, but until the Lord is finished making all things new, and He is making all things new, there will always be catastrophes and crises on this terrestrial ball 
But hear me, do not be shaken. Don't be shaken, my brother, in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter. The news is scary, Silas, but don't be shaken. Because the day of the Lord, to quote Paul, is already here. You will experience the same crazy world we all have experienced. It seems like it's always the day of the Lord now. We have all experienced these catastrophic moments in our lives personally, too, that reveal things for what they are. I used to think a certain way, and then after something happened in my life, I see things differently. That is what it means to be apocalyptic. Not that we run around with tinfoil on our head saying the sky is falling. Apocalyptic, the apocalyptic imagination, it means to be revealed. And so when you have an apocalyptic imagination, it means that you can see the world in a real way. So we will have these apocalyptic moments. But in the midst of this, Paul says, hold on to the traditions. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite theologians, defines tradition in the church as the basic facts of the gospel and the central actions of the worshiping church, one of which we're going to do today. Baptism and Eucharist, two of which. These are the fundamental principles of Christian behavior. And Silas, they are centered upon God's love. And love, dear Silas, is what makes our tradition a living tradition. It's not a dirty word. You might hear some criticized tradition, but what I think they're referring to is traditionalism. Traditionalism is the loveless, dead faith of the living. And you can find traditionalism in every single stinking church that you go to. But good tradition is the living faith of the dead, those who have gone on. The church triumphant is what we call them. Silas... I almost cried when I wrote this part. Uh, You're going to outlast us. You'll be around long after we're gone. But our love for God and our living faith will remain with you. So hold fast to the traditions that you were taught. It's what will anchor you and keep you rooted through it all. Lastly, my boy. That sounds kind of Irish. I just wanted to say something a little bit Irish. (laughs) Lastly, my boy. We have arrived at what I am sure you'll consider the most pressing issue. Who will you be married to in heaven? (laughs) I have no doubts that the issue of the Sadducees is troubling you at this very moment. (laughs) Whose wife will she be? In all reality, Silas, this wasn't even the real problem of the Sadducees. And I'll finish with this last point. If you keep and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught, then there's a good chance you'll embody the robust, full-spectrum faith you've been immersed in this great tradition of the Christian practice. And Silas, if you remember anything, remember this, heal divisions within the church. I think you're called to that. But just a warning about Christians. They're very tribal. Sometimes denominations mirror the cliquish, who's in, who's out, polarized rivalry that you might one day encounter on a school playground. In fact, I'll go as far as to say Many Christians' behavior does not mature that greatly past the toddlers whose company you will soon keep. It's the human condition. Many of us grow old, not too many of us grow up. And just like the Sadducees and the Pharisees who want to pin Jesus between their two polarized camps, we as Anglican charismatics or convergent Christians find that we often are asked to identify ourselves based on our loyalty or affirmation to a particular camp within divided Christendom. But Silas, we believe 
that the power and the love of God will answer uh, and is answering the prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. And this is a text that means so much to us. Jesus prayed to the Father that they, referring to the whole church, that they may all be one, that the church may become one. So here's what I'll leave you with, Silas. It's a rough road, and it costs us a lot. There's a kind of security in tribalism, but no matter the cost, be like Jesus. Jesus is the greatest thing that has happened to the world, that has happened to humanity. Jesus, in this moment, is presented with the polarized dilemma of two groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who didn't see eye to eye on anything. Well, most things. The Pharisees believed in the afterlife. Sadducees did not. The Pharisees believed in fate, the preordering of things. Sadducees didn't. The Pharisees were not political. The Sadducees definitely were. And they bring this tension to Jesus, this absurd problem uh, between these two groups. They present this polarizing problem between these two groups. But what Jesus does, and what he always did whenever he was presented with a polarizing problem between two groups, he uses their own stuff, and he heals the divide. That's the art form we learn from Jesus. The art form we learn from Jesus is how we can take people's stuff, their ideas, what they already affirm, and help them see how a unifying truth has been with them the whole time. The Sadducees didn't believe in the writings of the prophets, but they did affirm the Pentateuch, the first five books. So Jesus uses Exodus. He uses their own materials. He says, God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's presently still their God. There is a life awaiting. How could he be God of the dead? Is what Jesus said. Jesus channels the power of love with, with the grace of God and he breaks down walls. And Silas, I think this is what you're going to do. Man of the forest. This is the walk that we as converging Christians have often had to face, placed between three spiritualities that appear to be polar opposite. But maybe by God's grace, Silas, you'll be able to show these tribes how they already share and affirm the same stuff. Maybe as a charismatic, you might one day share with evangelicals that even as highly as they elevate the scripture, scripture only equips and transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit. A very Pentecostal idea. And maybe you might help show evangelicals how the sacramental stream would help them interpret the scriptures within the beautiful living tradition of the church. 2,000 years of the wake of the Spirit. Perhaps you may even help sacramental Christians recognize that both baptism and the Lord's Supper are supremely Pentecostal acts, shandai, acts where the Spirit moves. And maybe, just maybe, you might share with your sacramental and Pentecostal friends that what gives the meaning and context to these sacramental rites and the charisms of the Spirit is the word preached, the very word that evangelicals love so much. So Silas, what I'm trying to say is, Whenever you find yourself placed between any two or three camps of Christ, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, who might take issue that you're not in their tribe, use their stuff and show them how they're converging already. They just don't know it. And then invite them, love them, and celebrate them. 
invite them into the answering of Christ's prayer, that they may all be one. Silas, my dear Silas, we love you, and we welcome you into the household of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sacred Commons podcast. You can find out more about us at our website, thesacredcommons.com. If you feel connected to this ministry in any way, we appreciate your support. We appreciate your partnership. It helps us continue to do this work in the city of Youngstown, where we are happy to be launching a new church plan. Finally, why don't you come and join us for a service? 323 Wick Avenue at the beautiful St. John's Episcopal Church. We meet in the chapel. Come and worship with us. We'd love to see you there. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.